0: This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. Married life wasn't easy for comic Louis C.K., and neither is being a divorced father. At least that's the impression you get from his comedy series. He was a married father when he created and starred in the HBO series Lucky Louie, in which he constantly quarreled with his wife. In his new FX series, Louis, he plays a stand-up comic who is divorced and shares custody of his two young daughters, which pretty much describes C.K.'s current situation. Earlier in his career, he wrote for Late Night with Conan O'Brien, The Late Show with David Letterman, and The Chris Rock Show. In his new show, Louie, we get to see his character at work doing stand-up in a small club. Let's start with an excerpt of him performing at the club.
1: It's hard to start again after a marriage. It's hard to really, like, look at somebody and go, Hey, maybe something nice will happen. You just don't... I know too much about life to have any optimism. Because I know even if it's nice, it's going to lead to (laughs) I know that if you smile at somebody and they smile back, you've just decided that something (laughs) is going to happen. You might have a nice couple of dates, but then she'll stop calling you back. Or you'll date for a long time, and then she'll have sex with one of your friends, or you will with one of hers. Or you'll get married and it won't work out, and you'll get divorced and split your friends and money, and that's horrible. Or you'll meet the perfect person who you love infinitely, and you even argue well, and you grow together, and you have children, and then you get old together, and then she's gonna die. (laughs) That's the best-case scenario.
0: That's Louis C.K. doing stand-up from the opening episode of his new series, Louis. Um, Louis C.K., welcome back to Fresh Air. It's a real pleasure to have you back thank on the show. Thank
1: you. I love this show. It's my favorite radio show. So oh, gee, thank you. Thank you so much. Yes, easily.
0: So in your first series, Lucky Louis, you were finding it hard to be a family man, lots of friction with your wife. In the mm-hmm. new series, You're Divorced. And so mm-hmm. are you, the real person, <laughs>
1: divorced? So, <laughs> yes, I am. So
0: when you, the real person, got divorced, was there just mm-hmm. a little voice in your head saying, you know, this can make a good new series?
1: <laughs> it took me about a year and a half to catch up to it. I didn't – I actually – you know, you you never can look forward in life. Like every door you walk through, you think, oh, that's the end of everything now. Uh, so when I got divorced, I thought, well, there goes my act. I mean, I've been talking about uh, being married for so long. And I also thought being a dad was really part of being married. So, uh, And then I got divorced, and then everything changed, and I, I became a father in a whole new way and found a whole new set of uh, difficulties also. So uh, it, it took about a year for me to go, hey, I'm accumulating stories here that are worth telling.
0: Are you doing uh, joint so custody?
1: Yes, yeah, definitely. So I have the kids about half of every week. Um, and uh, they're with me, just me in my apartment, and then they go with their mom. I mean, their mom's still a, a very big part of my life. We, we are sharing, uh, raising the kids, um, so yeah, it's new.
0: So when you decided to do your new series, Louis about Louis C.K. as a single man, um, uh-huh. single father, what, are, what were some of the first situations that came to mind that you want, wanted your character to experience?
1: Well, uh the things that jumped out immediately that I've dealt with that felt unique to me um, or new to me were uh, uh, raising kids as just a dad, uh, which is you know when you're when you're a father in a marriage, uh, you sort of become the mother's assistant. And you sort of get a list from her every day and you do, you know, you run down the list and it feels very much like a chore. And uh, a lot of fathers live in kind of an avoidance. They sit on the toilet for several hours a day and, <laughs> you know, just run errands that take all forever. Oh, honey, it took me 40 minutes to go to the post office, you know. And, and, but then once you take it on on your own, I always loved being with my kids and I spent as much time as I could with them. I've never done any, when I'm not working, I'm with my kids. That's always been. When we were married, it was like that too. I never went and played golf or hung out with my friends. um, Because I really am attached to my children. Uh, But once you become a dad without the mom there, you have to take it all on. And you sort of activate male skills that you didn't know you could apply to fatherhood. I mean, I'm a filmmaker and I I direct movies. I, I produce TV shows. Um, I should be able to dress a couple of kids and get them out of the house in the morning, um, but, it's just, but. It be well, because <laughs> be, I mean it's hard because you're fighting chaos constantly. It's just a constant fighting of chaos. But I definitely have a different style as a father than I did when I was doing it in a partnership. Now it's I let a lot of chaos happen as because I, I kind of can I can handle it when two kids are being completely berserk and they're naked and throwing food around. Sometimes I just let it go because I can see a future where they're going to be dressed and they're going to be at school. Um, so <laughs> I kind of let stuff go sometimes. Other times I clamp down on everything and say you just – anything. If it's Sometimes with kids you have to say if it's the thing that you want, then you can't have it based on that. Based on the fact that you want it, because <laughs> kids need periods of withholding constantly, you know. But these are all things that I discovered on my own as a dad. Because before I just sort of was doing what what I was told, um, and now it's you know it's up to me. So that's exciting and overwhelming at the same time.
0: Do you find it challenging to be responsible for the lives of two people, or as you put it in one of your stand-up um, routines, you're responsible? For somebody I have to make not die. (laughs) Yes, that's your
1: primary responsibility is to deflect murder and death off of your children. Uh, But on top of that, uh, you have to make them comfortable. You know, there's layers here. Make them comfortable. (laughs) Make them not die. Make them, uh, you know, cool in the summer and warm in the winter. And then there's uh, actually raise them and do something. Uh, That's the hard part is because every parent, you're just trying to, get through the day. It's just the days of they wake you up at six. And there's no time. I mean, I'm a person who tends to fall into depressions and to sleep a lot and eat a lot. I can't really do that because my kids are with me and there's nobody there to cover for me. So at six in the morning, they're next to my bed waiting to seize life. And uh, I can't just go back to sleep. I, I have to get up and drag them to school, you know, and, and pick them up at school. The days that I have custody with them, I'm never working. I just drop work and I do kids. I pick them up at school. I feed them breakfast, dinner, lunch, put them to bed, give them their baths, get their teeth brushed, all that stuff.
0: So what was it like for you to start dating again after your divorce?
1: Well, it was uh, uh, that was one of the strangest things because you sort of feel like you just got out of prison, you know, and they give you your the suit you were convicted in and uh, they give you a p- paper <laughs> bag with a few, you know, with a watch and a wallet in it. Uh, maybe it's got two silver certificates <laughs> in it. And then they give you, you know, some nominal $8 in a bus ticket. And then you're like, what? And the cars are going way too fast. You can't cross the street, you know and you're considering going into the hotel room and hanging yourself after carving your initials <laughs> um you know it's it, it's definitely like there's not a lot of women my age single if they're single it's cuz something happened or didn't happen um so i started immediately immediately <laughs> dating uh women that were younger than me and that's a very strange uh, dynamic uh you know, and from their point of view, it's like they're they're uh, dating a dead person. Um, <laughs> it's like a corpse. I think that's how I see myself through their eyes. The way I, they look at me, it's like, is this guy? Re- he smells weird. He's sort of half dead. Um, but that always—that's so, the thing
0: that always gets me about about men who date much younger women. Does yeah. it make them? Does it make the older man feel younger? or oh no.
1: god no. It makes you feel older and actually it's interesting because you don't I never I used to look at older men that date younger women and, and kind of go ooh or he must be really shallow uh, you know to need to be with somebody who he outweighs uh experientially that much um, but what happens is that younger women really like older guys and they pursue you like I didn't go after young women I just stood there And here they came and said, hey, I'm interested in you because they don't look – it's kind of hard to describe. Like, I know why it won't work because I've lived 42 years. If she's lived, whatever, 28 years, she doesn't know how it's going to go. So she just goes, hey, this is fun. Um, And women are more creative sexually. So they can look at a guy who's um, decaying and see something (laughs) in that. You know, like the way that – Certain people like the fall, you know, instead of the spring. Um, but men aren't like that. That's kind of, you know, I think that's kind of what's going on underneath.
0: You know, in um, in um, some of your stand-up, you're really funny about your body and, you know, having a, a, what you described as, you know, a bit of a belly or or whatever, which you yeah, actually sure, lift fat. up and show. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and, Take a look, everybody. And you're really yeah. funny in describing it. So dating younger women must, especially if they're, like, you know very attractive must make mm. you feel more self conscious about things that you don't like about your body
1: uh, it, it sometimes you know i don't know I have a weird uh thing about me which is that i'm pretty self confident i don't i definitely look at my body and i go, yuck, this is like look at the lumps and the irregularities and the mismatched you know the the bottom doesn't match the top i don't you know but I don't care it doesn't bother me." It's not something that makes me feel bad. I definitely see it in it. And I, you know, objectively looking at my body, I'm not impressed. (laughs) But if I'm with a woman and she wants to be with me, she must like me. I don't worry that much about it. I definitely have sex with my T-shirt on always. Um, (laughs) I I haven't had sex without a shirt on, God, since I was about 23. Is that true? Yeah, I just don't think that's fair. (laughs) I mean, you know. Let her think she's with somebody decent, you know? Like, in, on the show, I do have sex sometimes on the show, and there's a rule in my head that I have to be on my back. Um, because, because your stomach have, flattens? Well, no, no, God, no. <laughs> I don't think... Oh, I'm not laying on back in that bed thinking, I look awesome right now. <laughs> uh, it's because I think I should always be the victim of the sex. I shouldn't be... <laughs> I don't think anyone wants to see me uh, looming over her. I think that's an upsetting uh, image for most. Um, And then also the 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 puppy uh, the stomach I get the the mother dog stomach that I get when I'm uh uh, um you know kind of you get the point it's not good. So yeah, on my back T-shirt, I'm okay. I can hang with that. I can I can be okay with the young woman on my back T-shirt on. Anything else? Not fair. That's this, funny.
0: You know. There's a great scene in the sec- second episode. You're playing poker with a bunch of comics. Mm-hmm. One of the comics is gay. And so uh, everybody's kind of ragging on him, but they're also kind of curious about certain things that gay people do and where they hang out. And, and then you ask if he minds when you use the word faggot in a routine. And I, I, want, I want to play an excerpt of that scene. Sure.
1: Does it offend you when I say that word? What word? Hello? No, Faggot.
2: Yeah, does it bother you when he says the word faggot?
1: <laughs> no, it bothers me when you say it, because you mean it. Yeah, but really, it's like, as a comedian and a, a gay guy, you're the only gay comic I know. Do you think I shouldn't be using that word on stage?
2: I think you should use whatever word you want. Uh, and When you use it on stage, I can see it's funny, and I don't care. But are you interested to know what it might mean to, to gay men?
1: Yeah, I am interested.
2: Well, the word faggot really means a bundle of sticks used for kindling in a fire. Now, in the Middle Ages, when they used to burn people they thought were witches, they used to burn homosexuals, too. And they used to burn the witches at a stake, but they thought the homosexuals were too low and disgusting to be given a stake to be burned on. So they used to just throw them in with the kindling, with the other faggots. So that's how you get flaming faggot. So what you're saying is gay people are a good alternative fuel source. They get the term diesel dyke.
1: (laughs) I'm sorry. Go ahead.
2: You might want to know that every gay man in America has probably had that word shouted at them when they're being beaten up. Sometimes many times. Sometimes by a lot of people all at once. So when you say it, it kind of brings that all back up. But, you know, by all means, use it. Get your laughs. But, you know, now you know what it means. Okay, thanks, faggot. We'll keep that in mind.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's a scene from Louis C.K.'s new series. Louis, so who who is the comic who is explaining what the word faggot means?
1: That's Rick Crome. And Rick is uh, a, a comedian, lives in New York City. And he's just this guy who I met. I started in Boston when I was about 18 years old doing stand-up. And in Boston, you didn't meet a lot of openly gay people. Usually when people said, I'm gay, the next thing they would say is, ouch. You know, people, it wasn't a very giving place that way. And when I moved to New York City, he's probably the first openly gay person I ever met, I think. It's possible. I, I don't know. But definitely the first gay comedian I met. Anyway... Rick uh when I met him I, I had that conversation with him about the word faggot I asked him about it and uh he said pretty much that to me I mean I wrote that scene as written as uh, but he uh he said it that way too that he didn't lecture me or say you shouldn't say it he just said hey if you're interested it's totally devastating uh and he gave <laughs> yeah. me that that information Uh, And I never forgot it. I mean, I was about 22. I have said faggot on stage a number of times since then, but I don't uh, I know what I'm saying and I know what it means now.
0: So um, if you still use the word faggot on stage, how do you use it? What's the context?
1: Well, I feel like when I get asked that, I get defensive about it. I start saying, oh, well, no, it's okay that I say faggot because of this or that. But uh, to be really honest with you, I'm not sure why I say it. I feel like I'm not sure I should be saying it. I say it sometimes, but it's an open question to me, and that's one of the reasons that I had this scene, because I wanted—I thought that's something unique that I can show as a stand-up is that we do wonder about this stuff. Um, it feels right when I say it because I'm just saying it to be crazy or to be funny or to be extreme, but there are times I go, is this okay, really? What does that mean that I'm hurting people that I don't know like who are watching me on TV? What does that mean? And and where are they coming from when they get hurt, and is it okay to hurt people? Sometimes I think it is. Sometimes I think it isn't. It's an open question to me. I'm not sure. I'm not sure why I'm so often disgusting on stage. I don't always know where it comes from. So that's one reason I put this out there to say, well, I'm not. You know, I don't know either. Um, I do ask once in a while. I am doing the research.
0: Who who do you Um, ask?
1: guys like Rick, you know, I got guys like Rick. And then why I ask, I talked to, I have black friends. Chris Rock is one of my best friends. And we talk about racial topics on stage. Um, you know, so, so do, I don't do you I, run
0: things past him and say, does this sound offensive or is this OK?
1: No, I don't think that way. I don't think that way. I don't think like I'm not worried about offending people. I feel like if I say something. You just said
0: you were worried about offending people. <laughs> I know. Isn't that interesting?
1: I go back and forth. I, it's not that I worry about it, but I think about it and I'm, I I don't I think if you're using nitroglycerin you got to read the label and you got to be responsible and know what the dangers are um but I do think that it if you know that something's dangerous it doesn't necessarily mean you shouldn't say it I think that to to take hurtful speech that's running around the country and re and take it in and then regurgitate it back out in the form of comedy in order to take people to these Dark places i my instinct is that that's a good idea um, because it makes them laugh in scary places and it makes them think about them i don 't think that that's a bad when Chris and I talk about race, we just go to the worst places um, and i he used to call me and say, "How is it like being white today? Is it still great and I go oh you don't have and i'd say it's so good, Chris, you have no idea." I mean it's – I can walk down the street and cops just are friendly to me and, you know, I get the benefit (laughs) of the doubt. Uh, I I said that to him once that I can get in a time machine and go to any period in history and I'll be treated with politely – and I said, Chris, you'll never be able to do that. You can't go past 1975 in a time machine. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, but then I go, I can't go in the future because I don't want to find out what's going to happen to white people. So these are all things that I, I arrived at by saying really inappropriate things to my black friend Chris Rock and to other people. And I think you got to say them on stage to get to those truths. you know. And to say it's awesome being white is a really arrogant, horrible, disgusting thing to say. But because I said that out loud on stage and then I defended it and talked about it, I came out with a bit that I always get told by black people is so interesting and so real and so interesting for them to hear that perspective. Uh, So that, again, to say, yeah, I'm a fat faggot and then find out what gay people feel about it and then say it, talk about that. I think that's all positive. Talking is always positive. That's why I talk too much.
0: (laughs) So I never heard that explanation of the word faggot or flaming faggot before. Is that like etymologically true?
1: I don't know, and I've actually read things online where people are saying that's not accurate. I don't think it matters. I love that on all sorts of websites and gay blogs and stuff that this scene has sort of like stirred up conversation, which I think is just healthy. And t- this scene is about a guy who believes that to be the true origin of the word, and it's about his feelings about it and how what impact it has on me. If it's not the real explanation of the word faggot, it, I don't think it matters. Um the point of the scene isn't to be accurate. It's not a news show. It's, it's it's exchange between characters.
0: Do you have poker games like the one in the scene with other comics?
1: Yeah, some uh, not as much as I used to. It's hard for me because everybody's smoking and I'm 42 and I can't stay up all night and play poker anymore. Uh, but uh, but those that game. Um, there's a guy in the in the game Eddie Brill who's really there because we play poker at his house every every Monday. I don't I, I don't go to that game very often anymore. But that is something comedians do get together sometimes and play poker. Rick and I had that conversation at, at a comedy uh, at the Comedy Cellar, and that scene starts with him telling us stories about a gay uh, club, a flo- sort of a floating club um, called City Jerks in New York City. And the, the, what I love about Rick is that he's very centered in his sexuality. He's very uh, He's very confident. But heterosexual men are very not confident about gay sex. Like, when they hear about it, they giggle like little girls. And there's been a lot of times at the Comedy Cellar where he'll tell stories about gay gatherings, and all the hetero comedians who think they're so tough just turn into little children, and they shriek, <laughs> and they are, really? Is it really like that? What's it like? And he just says, well, it's like this. And it's it's funny because, you know, gay men have to—they are put through sort of a crucible, and I'm going to speak—you know, I'm, I'm it's not— I'm just taking liberty in saying this, gay men have to go through something to own their who they are. They get beat up, they they get ostracized, whatever go, they go through. If they survive it, they come out very confident people, They they come out having been tested and having to really figure out who they are to get through it, because I think that's how you get through any kind of a test is by really finding your strengths and believing in yourself. So a lot of gay people who are still standing and still strong, that's who they are heterosexual men have never been put through that test. We, we, we don't get – nobody goes, oh, my God, you like women? And you don't have to defend it for your whole life. So we're not so sure about our sexuality. I think that's one reason why heterosexual men attack gay people or, or are afraid of them because they're now confident and they've gone through this. But we don't know who we are sexually. We're a mess. Uh, so I think that that's why the two sides of the sexual barrier are such an interesting uh, – it's such an interesting conflict.
0: Since we're talking about your feelings about your body, I want to play yeah. a clip from the series, Louie, uh, in which you're talking about feeling like you're in bad shape. And this is from an episode in which you, you think like maybe there's something wrong and you, you go see a doctor and the doctor is an old friend of yours who's played by Ricky Gervais and he's really funny in it. But, but anyways, you, you're worried about your health. You're worried about your body. And so here's some of the stand up that you do in that episode.
1: My days start poorly, because of the shape I'm in. Because now, also, I'm 42, so I'm, getting, I'm, get, I'm really on the decline. There's never going to be another year of my life that was better than the year before. <laughs> That's never going to happen again. I've seen my best years. And when I wake up in the morning, I just, I'm, I, I just sit there, and I'm like, oh. Uh. Like it's, it's an awful way to start your day. Every day starts with me like my eyes open and I reload the the program of misery. I just open my eyes, remember who I am, what I'm like. And I go, oh, I I guess, I guess do it. I don't know, I guess, oh my God.
0: That's Louis C.K. doing a stand-up from his new series, Louis. So what really does get you most depressed about getting older? And really, 42 isn't very old.
1: No, it's not. And I, I, I definitely have a heightened sense of the decay of my body. I think I, I – it's fascinating to me. It doesn't bother me really. Like it's, it's – I th- I feel like I'm definitely I think that that's true what I say in that clip I I don't think I'm going to get better and I do think the decline is pretty exponential <laughs> but I th- I'm so happy to be getting to see it you know um, I-, I like being witness to things it's interesting and it's much more interesting to be fighting. Uh, The fast death of your body than to just be young and be able to do anything when you're on the upswing And you just can't really get hurt in a way that you're not going to heal from I just think life is less interesting when you realize that you've got about 12 days left and They're not going to be as fun as the last 12 um, It kind of puts you in a really heightened uh, place. I like it. So uh i don't wake up and get i mean I, I definitely waking up is the hard part waking up and go, and and starting to move your muscles for the for, for for the beginning of the day is hard but yeah i know there's people listening who are you know 58 62 they're just saying just shut up
0: uh, you're
1: <laughs> you're 42 you have no idea how springy you are right now and how elastic your your limbs are i'm sure it's going to get harder um but i feel more capable as a person than i did In my 20s and 30s, I look back at that person and I just kind of shrug, like, what was the point of any of that?
0: So um, did you lose weight after separating from your wife?
1: Uh, Yeah, I did, because I went on the road and did stand-up for a good, solid – You know, I mean, that's what – it took me four years to get back on television. And during that time, I've been doing stand-up and touring heavily and doing stand-up specials. That became – I got this new obsession to to do a different hour of stand-up comedy every year and shoot a special, and then throw the material away and start fresh. That's how I've been spending the last four years. And uh, to do that, you really have to be at a top physical shape. And I trained in boxing gyms with boxing trainers and uh, and sort of approached every special as the, the fight, you know, my new title fight. So, yeah, that I, I didn't have a goal to lose weight or look better, but I lost weight because I was trying to get more stamina and trying to get uh, – you know, when you're boxing, you have to think under pressure, and that's what stand-up is like. So it was a good kind of uh, metaphorical training.
0: So you actually trained with a boxer, not just lifting weights, but doing boxing.
1: Yeah, I did, and sparred and stuff. I tra- I trained with Mickey Ward for a while, who's uh, this guy they make making a movie about. I think it's called The Fighter. I'm not sure. But Mickey Ward is this amazing Irish boxer from Lowell, Massachusetts. And he uh, – uh, Mickey is uh, – Famous for fights he had with a guy named Arturo Gatti, where they went, they did three fights that are considered some by some people the best three fights in history. Um, They just pummeled each other for twelve rounds every time, and they had a draw, and they each won one. So they were just so perfectly matched, and I I can't imagine how he did it. And so I met him, and what I learned is that ah, it's just Mickey will tell you, it's just training. You just got to train. You just got to be in shape. That's all it is. It's just. Getting in the gym and being dedicated enough to do the grunt work and the boring, constant training, so that you'll be fit enough to take the beating. It's no great. He didn't go to a to the North Pole and have a ice forest like uh, Superman. He just worked out. Uh, so that's why I, I I asked him to train. He traveled with me a little bit. We came on the road with me and we trained together. And uh, I tried to draw from him and learned how to how to do that.
0: So since you play yourself. Or a character with the same name as yourself uh, in the series. Do you wear your own clothes?
1: That's a funny question. Yeah, I do. I wear always, I just get dressed and go to the set. And, um, you know, uh, it's just pretty much I'm a guy, I wear a t shirt and jeans. And sometimes I throw a pole over the t shirt. And if it's cold, I throw in a sweatshirt. That's it. That's me. And I've tried throughout my career to try. I'd like, love to be a guy in a suit. I thought when I started doing stand up, I would wear suits because I just love that look. Of a dude in a suit but i can if I put on a suit, I just start melting, and it comes out you know the shirt comes out of the pants, and <laughs> i don 't have a waist, so the pants go down to my you know halfway down my legs and i can 't pull it off. I need to wear cotton and I need to wear simple cotton clothes so that's on our show we don 't have any makeup, nobody wears makeup um, and i I always uh, try to get people to wear their own clothes. the other characters also though if there's somebody who's a specific kind of character, we do we dress them we have a very a great wardrobe uh person she's really smart um but i don't need her for me nobody 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 touches my head when i'm working i don't get makeup i don't get hair i I mean people don't walk around with coiffed hair and even facial tones and crisp new clothing uh it's just not It's not reality so and it's not compelling on film to watch either you know i grew up watching films in the 70s thing you know watching characters like popeye doyle uh on uh, you know the french connection but just sweaty uh gritty people so i guess that's what that's the way i see myself (laughs) So
0: there's one episode where you're wearing a suit, you show up for a date, and you're wearing mm-hmm. a suit, and she's shocked. She, <laughs> she thinks, yes. what is this, this is some kind of formal thing, and you're making all kinds of excuses. And you do look very uncomfortable in the suit.
1: Yes. Yeah, I had. That was the first thing I thought. I mean, I, what I wanted to do in the you pilot kind of look like to... your
0: parents said to you. You have to wear a suit for this. <laughs> yeah, it's like
1: it's I'm going to the prom. Yes, and exactly. And that definitely was a good way to show. And you know, the 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 guy I am on the show is definitely me without any of the anything I've learned. It's just me making horrible mistakes that I I don't make in real life, but that are inside of me. They're they're the things I would do if I didn't think for a second, uh, and wearing a suit to pick up a. Uh, you know, kind of an alt chick in the Lower East Side who's wearing a you know a T-shirt and jeans is a mistake I could make if I didn't think for a second. Now, uh, now there's, yeah. there's
0: there's an episode in Louis in which um, the comic Nick DiPaolo co-stars and yes, he's on stage saying um, really nasty things about not only Obama but anyone who supported him or still supports him. Sure. Um, and. You um, get into a big political fight with him that ends up in a, a physical fight with him. Mm-hmm. Then you go with him to the ER after he's injured in that fight. And in the ER, you you have a genuine heart-to-heart conversation about the difficulties of marriage. And I found that a really interesting scene because obviously – I mean these are, these are such divisive times and people who disagree politi- politically – sometimes find it really hard to be together at all. <laughs> yes. Um, and I thought this scene just kind of got to that and also got to what you still had in common and and the kind of um, emotional depth that you could still share together. And I, I was hoping you could talk about um, writing that scene and why why you wrote it.
1: Well, that was a really important one to me because you know Nick and I used to be roommates. We were both comedians from Boston. I mean, I grew up in Newton, which is a, a pretty liberal place, and he grew up in Danvers, Massachusetts. You know, which is just uh, a place. And uh, and we both ended up in New York at the same time, and we shared an apartment just because we were we were, we knew each other. We barely knew each other. And uh, Nick has always been a very conservative, and I've always been not i mean i'm as I grow older i 'm both things um, but so Nick and I always had these great conversations where he would start on the total opposite end, and I would start on the opposite end and we 'd find either middle ground or we'd find you know I learned a lot from him. I learned a lot about conservative thinking from him, and it's made me able to watch conservative shows and I know where they're coming I know where their heart is, and I can see it i don't think of them as the enemy. Um but anyway, Nick and I have this uh, we i had this idea that we get in a political fight where it gets physical that never happened with us, but that to me was just interesting to see a fight because of politics between two guys, and in order to do that, I made myself the more unreasonable guy i didn't want because I am the more liberal i didn't want to have him be such a jerk that I beat him up. that would be just, <laughs> just kind of like a a fake heroic thing. So I call him a Nazi over and over again, and I call him Himmler and tell him to go to a rally and stuff just for saying – questioning Obama's leadership. And that's not fair. But I wanted to be the unreasonable one. It was more interesting to me. And his arguments are actually reasonable. He says in the thing that – because my argument to him is why don't you give us a turn? You've had Bush for eight years. Why can't you just give liberals a turn now? And he says, well, you're not giving us a turn to to, – complain that whenever anybody puts down Obama, they're called a Nazi. And that's so you you got to complain when Bush was president. Why don't we get to criticize now? It's a very valid point, I think. But I just call him a Nazi again and he throws water in my face. And then we fight like a couple of 42-year-old guys just grunt and then fall down, get out of breath very quickly. (laughs) So but anyway, then and then, yeah, we go to the hospital because my friend got his hand hurt. I don't care that we're not agreeing. And I go and I take him to the emergency room and uh and we and we start talking about what we really share which is we're both plus 40. He doesn't he's married happily, but he has no children and his his wife and he have passed that that sort of point where they can have kids. And now they're faced with just each other till one of them is going to lose the other and that's a, there's a melancholy feeling to that. But I envy it because I'm I'm alone. I have my kids and that means a lot to me. But I do miss uh, having somebody there all the time. So you know, you can have that both those conversations with a human being. I liked, I did like showing that.
0: So, um, in the uh, in the series, at the end of the credit sequence, you're um, uh, eating a slice of pizza, and then you just walk downstairs into the comedy cellar. This kind of you know, brick wall downstairs small club yeah. where you're doing stand up. Do you play those kinds of places anymore?
1: Oh sure, all the time. I mean, that's where you develop material. You know, I, I, I almost every night that I'm in New York City, I go down to the Comedy Cellar and uh, just do ten, ten minutes, twenty minutes, sometimes half an hour. And uh, it, the audience is often like uh, people don't even speak English. It's just people who kind of wander downstairs, so it's a real challenge. I mean, I do uh, when, I, when I'm really making a living, I go do concerts in theaters, but you don't really get a you know you get a good reaction. But in a club, when they're just sitting there eating uh, falafel. Uh, it's it's just a more honest response. So yeah, I do clubs. I I do the cellar all the time. That's my life.
0: So that's how you develop your material, material yeah. to see what gets last when when it's not even your audience.
1: Yeah, and I mean, you can't there's no practicing comedy. You have to just go on stage. So that's where that's where I go on and I develop and I keep the chops up too. I have to stay good. If I don't do comedy for 2 weeks, I completely forget how to do it. And when I go back out, it's I I'm a little shaky. So
0: So um you are um Part Mexican, part Jewish, part Catholic, uh, part Eastern European. You were (laughs) born in Mexico, spent the first few years of your life there before moving to the States. So how do you identify ethnically and religiously?
1: Well, I don't. I don't identify. I think ethnic identification is kind of a mess now. Like people are so – they really want to identify people. I I was with my friend – visiting a friend of mine who has kids and they were watching a show on Nickelodeon. And there was a, a black young kid in the show, and one of them was trying to say which kid she was. She said, that kid, that one. I said, you mean the black one? And she said, oh, that's mean to say he's black. I'm like, oh, well, no, it's not. He's black. And I realized I've kind of stumbled into something. of I don't know what she's been taught. Well, you're supposed to say African-American, but the kid hasn't opened his mouth. He could be French. I mean, to me, that would be prejudice to say African-American. I don't know where he's from. He might be Canadian. Uh, so then what do you call him? Well, he looks black, so I'll call him black. Well, you could call him a person. You could say that guy. You know, there's just this need to identify that's kind of strange to me. And I, I'm Mexican. My dad's Mexican, but I'm white. And uh, most Americans aren't aware that there's uh, white Mexicans, there's indigenous Mexicans, there's black Mexicans. But, uh, you know, I, I think racial identity is a very mixed bag. I, I grew, my abuelita lives in Mexico in the city. Uh, all my relatives on my dad's side are Mexicans. Well, but are they are they brown little people that mow lawns? No, they're they're educated. Uh, all my uncles are doctors of something or other, PhDs, and uh, they have lighter skin, and they're, half their relatives are from Europe, and half their relatives are indigenous. I don't know. I don't even... Reaching back, some of them are Hungarian. My grandfather's Hungarian, Jewish, and migrated to Mexico, married a Catholic woman, raised a bunch of kids that look Hungarian-Mexican, <laughs> one of them came here, married my mom, who's an Irish uh, woman, doesn't care about religion, but w- went ahead and raised as Catholic for a little while anyway. So, I, I, you know, I don't know.
0: So when people meet you, but they only know you from your characters on TV, mm. what mistakes do they make about who you really are?
1: Uh I think some of my earlier material, where I was a lot more, when I was a young father, I did really coarse material about my children because I was very frustrated in having children and 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 uh, the struggle of being a parent. So I said a lot of awful things about my kids. So I think some people think that I'm not, I don't like my kids or something, and that's definitely not true. They're they're the whole world to me. Um, but other than that, I don't know. People seem to know who I am. I don't put on that much of a character. I'm pretty honest on stage. So probably I'm. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a distilled version of myself on stage. I'm definitely more quiet, and I'm not a, a loud, brash jerk uh, in my real life, uh, unless I get a few drinks in me. Um, <laughs> but otherwise, it is me.
0: Louis C.K., it's been great to talk with you again. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you very much. I love doing the show.
0: Love having you. Thank you. Louis C.K.'s new comedy series, Louis, is on FX Tuesday nights after Rescue Me.